Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Ever since he was a kid, Rufus Wainwright was not one to fade into the background. That's how he described it when he was telling me about growing up in this family of famous folk musicians where everyone could sing, and there was kind of this air of, of competition. Now, I've been a fan of Rufus's for a long time, and I gotta say, the origin story that you're gonna hear today really helped me understand in a new way how he ended up sounding the way he does. Rufus Wainwright, coming up. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So when you hear the name Rufus Wainwright, you kind of can't help but think of the the go big or go home approach. Rufus is so well known for maximalist songs that it's easy to forget he comes from one of the royal families of folk music, the long line of Wainwrights and McGarrigals that helped shape the path of popular folk for the last half century. And so on the eve of his very own 50th birthday this past summer, Rufus decided to go small and go home with an album called Folkocracy. High on a rocky ledge lives a middle Shy as a shadow, lovely as lace and cold as ice. On the album, Rufus revisits a handful of, of classics, also brings in some wonderful collaborators like David Byrne, Sheryl Crow, Shaka Khan, and his own family join him on this album too. I talked to Rufus around the time the record came out. Here's our conversation. Hi. Hello. Hello. So before we get to the album, I want to go sort of way back. As I mentioned in the intro, you grew up in in a family that is synonymous with folk music. Could you share your earliest memory of music in that house? Um, yeah. Well, my earliest memories of music were, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, my mother, Kate McGarrigal, would sing to both Martha and I every night. Um, very dark, uh, brooding rather violent uh, <laughs> lullabies, you know. And uh, and so it started with that. But then there was, you know, there was always music in the house. I think the main the main sort of thrust of it was that our grandmother, uh, Gabby Latremoy, um, or Gabby, eventually Gabby McGarrigal, she, she uh, I think she had had certain aspirations for the stage. You know, she loved to perform. She was a, she was a good singer. She was very funny. I think she would have loved to have been a dancer or something, but that was just out of the question, you know, for a woman of her, of her generation and from her, from where she came from socioeconomically. So it just didn't happen. And so then I think years when, when Kate and Anna became performers, um, a lot of that was sort of 
reawoken in her and and her home in Saint Sever up in the Laurentians became a bit of a stage. The living room became kind of a stage, and every weekend when we would be with her, the whole family would we would sort of create this floor show where all the kids would do something, and you know Kate and Anna would do something, and then of course the big finale was always Gabby <laughs> singing some kind of racy you know music hall song from the turn of the century or something and um and uh yeah so i think a lot of it is is because of our grandmother uh, gabby beautiful what would it what would a song that you would have sung at that time be well i would i would always do some over the rainbow or i would sing a lot of irish folk songs like the minstrel boy um and then there was more kind of pleasant funny things like my grandfather's clock and then there was a lot of french songs as well mm. uh, à la claire fontaine and and um, La Madelon and stuff like that. So, 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 so there was, uh, it was, uh, that was another thing too. It was, it, it was completely bilingual. Um, there was, there was kind of equal French, equal English singing, which was nice. You're painting this jo- like joyful picture of just a family and people are probably picturing just. Well, a, it was a- joyful. I would say it was joyful, but it was also pretty intense. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of competition. Um, if you speak to Martha, certainly she she it was not it was a rocky ride for her because I was totally game and totally and I was the being the oldest and the and the boy in this sort of family of, of women. I was very much the kind of apple of everybody's eye, and I was so eager and 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 you know and and frankly good. <laughs> uh, so I kind of took up a lot of space, and but and Martha would would come down and sing, but I think a lot of the other cousins felt a little overshadowed. Uh, by, by my mother and I and our kind of you know intense uh, musical love affair, um, but yeah, I think it, I think it did fuel them nonetheless. You know, especially Martha in her, um, you know, in her own direction and her own sensibility. And she, you know, and she'd kind of go upstairs and brood and listen to Leonard Cohen and then come down and sing a song and then retreat and come back down. It was <laughs> it was an interesting. Uh, period. The the brooding, the word brooding has already come up like three times. We've only been talking for a few minutes. I, oh, really? It's yeah. So, it, yeah, well, you said <laughs> that your mom would sing you dark brooding lullabies. And yes, I just love okay, the image of that, like brooding lullabies. And then like, okay, good night. That that yeah, probably shapes yeah. you as a person a little bit, I would think. Yeah, yeah, no, it, um, yeah, look, look, I, I ended, I have, we have a 12 year old daughter. Uh, and I, you know, when she was a little kid, uh, like very little, about three or four, and just starting to understand, you know, stand stuff, um, I started to read her uh, German folks, uh, German fairy tales, like original Grimm's and all of that. And, you know, because my husband's German, especially. And I do consider it one of the great um, experiences of my life uh, was to rediscover those stories and, and, and how much it equated to, you know, my mother's kind of dark songs um because there is a kind i don't know there's something about that um they're really engaging and and very violent and very uh intense and 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 magical and and so it's um i don't know i i i i really am i'm so thankful because it could have been so boring (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it's mostly to entertain the parents that those stories are so weird Oh, for sure. But they're magnetic to kids, too, because you don't know that they're yeah, supposed no, to be, kids, yeah. you know, you, you yeah, can just yeah, yeah. be interested without yeah, feeling like there's something wrong by being interested in yeah, something that's dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. 
So coming from this amazing folk family, it would have been easier, maybe at least expected for you to follow the same path as your your yeah. mom or your dad or your, your grandma. Um, both your parents celebrated folk are celebrated folk musicians, and then you end up going more towards pop and opera and classical music. Yeah. Did you yeah. feel any pull yeah. to stay in the folk world when you were carving your early musical path? Um, not particularly. <laughs> um, I, mainly because I was, you know, my, 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 my conversion to opera was, was, I was very young. I was 13. Um, and, and I really went whole hog for, for, for that type of music. And, and, it, and I think it actually turned off quite a few people in my folk or in the folk world. I mean, my mother appreciated it eventually. Um, and she actually became a big opera fan herself, but my dad has never liked opera. Um, and a lot of people too didn't really understand it. it the, the folk world is very heterosexual, very um, how can I say this? Very uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm not I don't know I wouldn't say working class, but there's a kind of you know there's a communistic you know the people kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think opera was considered quite elitist and and snobby. So so it kind of went the other way. Um, I think they appreciated my talent and they also knew, you know, they wished me well. <laughs> and, um, and there were some similarities at times, but, uh, but I didn't, uh, I, I was pretty hell bent on, on going my own way. In defiance of the folk, the, the sort of, I mean, slightly, it- slightly. I mean, I, I look, I look, I, I, to the, I appreciate tremendously the, um, my upbringing and the folk, the experience that I had, you know, singing that music and being at those festivals and hanging out with those musicians. I never felt like I fit in. And it was mainly a a gay thing. If I was a lesbian, (laughs) it would be a completely different story because there is, there has always been a, 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 a real connection between the lesbian community and folk music. It's like a long tradition, but for gay men, it was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't easy to, you know, there was me and Ashley McIsaac. That was it. <laughs> well, that's so interesting. So what, <laughs> you and Ashley, what made you want to come back to it now? Or? the music is great. The music is great. Um, also, I feel now that there's a kind of, um, I don't know, I think in this world that we live in now, which has become so, uh, me- you know, uh, mechanical and also so digital and, and, and certainly know what's going on with it with AI and stuff, um, there is this aching need to, to just have, you know, these human experiences and, and just to create something that is, I don't know, just that is, uh, warm <laughs> and inviting and, 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 uh, and, and, and flawed yeah. <laughs> slightly, you know? Uh, so, so there's, a. Uh, yeah. And I think you eventually do go back to, to your roots as, as you get older I'm Candice Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton. We're the hosts of ICYMI, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And we want to help you make sense of the need-to-know internet stories of the week. Consider us your internet historians of past, present, and future. Of the good, the bad, and the truly unhinged. From nuanced takes on stories we're all closely following to the ones you wished you heard about. In case you missed it, that's ICYMI, the podcast that's extremely online, so you don't have to be. Follow and listen now.
want to talk about the title, Folkocracy. How did you come up yes. with that? Uh, I came up with that. Uh, how did I come up with that? I Oh, it, you know, it was my friend Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys. Mm-hmm. He, he He's a friend and a fan of, 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 of both me and my family and comes to, and, and loves folk music himself. But he uh, and, and he was talking about various different folkocracies. You know, there's mine and there's and he's also we're also good friends with the Thompsons, like Richard and Linda Thompson and Teddy Thompson. And so that's the Thompson folkocracy. And then there's, you know, the Seeger folkocracy, hmm. these different families who are uh, the Carters and so forth. So so it's um yeah, he, he, he but he was the one who coined it when I went to Spain recently they they call it foco crazy <laughs> foco crazy <laughs> which i also like i like it just as much it's really good <laughs> it's really good okay well yeah. let's let's play one of the one of the songs from foco crazy and and yeah. talk about it we'll we'll start with this one here we go From his new album, Folkocracy, that is Rufus Wainwright and Brandy Carlisle, two iconic voices, whole boy, together in the song Down in the Willow Garden. You've called the song a brutal and masochistic murder ballad. Uh, yeah. So yeah. why did you want to sing it with Brandy Carlisle? Yeah, yeah. Well, I felt it would be, I had to do it with a woman. Um, mm. That was the that was sort of the only caveat because it is, you know, in a pretty rough. But, um, but that being said, you know, it's, I don't know. It's there's something uh, with a lot of folk songs. There is, and this one certainly has it. There's something about the tune that it fascinates the listener, and they can't quite tell why. Um, it's a it's a strange ingredient. It's like a secret ingredient that is un undiscernible or undefinable. And um, and this song has that power. Um, you know, for instance, my daughter once again, when she was a little younger, you know, I sang this song. And she wanted to sing it, you know. She she's just just gravitated towards it. Uh, a lot of you, you get it a lot from children. Uh, what songs have this and what songs don't? Um, and this one just has it. It has that that whatever that frequency. Beautifully said. Okay, here's another here's another song. And we'll From his new album, Folkocracy, that is Rufus Wainwright getting the band back together, so to speak, with Anna McGarrigal, Chaim Tannenbaum, Lily Lankin, Lucy Wainwright-Roche, and Martha Wainwright. That song is Wild Mountain Time. You really have the feeling listening to that of exactly what you said, of capturing time and, and capturing yeah. a moment. How did this one come together? Yeah. yeah, no, I was doing a show in Montreal. Look, initially there was there was talk of maybe going to Montreal 
during the making of this record and spending a couple of weeks and really, you know, digging into that that uh, beautiful, you know, situation up there. Um, but then I realized, you know, I, I kind of want this to be my own angle, you know, my own sort of perspective. And uh, and I'd like to do the family thing at some point again. But uh, but it's this is about me at the moment. Um, but then once the record was done, I was like, you know, I, it would be stupid <laughs> if I don't have the family on, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a really, you know, in a profound way. So, so I was in Montreal during a concert and, you know, I was, I, I had the day off uh, after the show. In fact, my voice sounds pretty destroyed on that recording, but, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, and they all, you know, gathered and, and we went into the studio and cut the track. But, um, yeah, no, it's, um, I'm, I'm really happy that that track's on there. It's, it's very important and, and it's the last song on the, on the record. So, and so that's, that shows. You have um, your longtime family friend Chaim Tannenbaum playing yes. your late mom's banjo on it. Yes, my mother's. Yeah, my mother's banjo is on the album, which was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I knew that was a big deal because, you know, the banjo for her was. I think I would say it's, I don't know if it was her favorite instrument. I mean, she loved probably the piano the best, but she was a magnificent banjo player, and and I always associate it with her. She's you know she's she used to play it a lot for me as a, as a child and. And so, um, so yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I'm really happy that it made it on the record. Was it, it em- on the record. was it emotional to stand around with your family and sing it and have him playing your mom's banjo and the whole thing, the last song yeah. on the record? I think so. We, I don't, I don't think we knew it was the last song at that time. You know, we hadn't really sequenced it yet. Um, uh, but I don't know. It was, Yes, it was emotional. I think I, I, I think I was actually quite exhausted, though, <laughs> in general, from 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 having toured so much. So I was just I kind of leaned a lot on them, you know. I, I think what's nice about the songs, you know, I sing the beginning and I do a verse, and then but then I kind of give it to them, you know. And Lucy uh, sings beautifully, and Martha and Lily and everyone and Heim. So so it's sort of it's almost like the family holding you up a little bit and keeping you afloat, which, uh, which they're supposed to do. I have to think that making this record and that song in particular has given you a moment to pause and to look back at your roots and your family legacy. Um, has, has making this, this particular album changed anything in how you look back at the, that part of your story? Well, it, it, it has made me realize that I, 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 sh- I would like to do a little bit more with the family. Um, because even, you know, during one thing is that, I mean, COVID was so tough on Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was in L.A. for 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 most of it, for, for pretty much all of it. And um, and I couldn't go to Canada for many years. And and there was just I don't know, it was, you know, a lot of relatives died who, who were older, not not from COVID, but but just, you know, just time passed. And, you know, my uncle passed away and and friends and stuff oh, and, and and so it's sort of I don't know there's a tenuous uh, thread up there um, so I, I, I yeah I'd like to come back up and, and spend more time and, and, and do you know make you know work work with, with with my family again soon well this is a really beautiful record uh, thank you thank you you're welcome it's always fun to talk okay. to you Rufus yeah okay bye okay, bye bye
album Folkocracy that was Rufus Wainwright and Anoni with a new take on Rufus's classic song Going to a Town. Before that you heard my conversation from earlier this summer with Rufus Wainwright. All right that's it for this episode of Q but if you want to hear another chat with a musician a totally different musician than Rufus Wainwright you can catch my conversation with Nonso Amadi. He's originally from Lagos, Nigeria. Uh, came to Canada to study engineering and it has this wild story where he was sort of just casually putting out songs and then suddenly one of them blew up and got millions of streams. It changed his life. He'll talk about that and also about this unique blend of the sound of Afrobeats, kind of from where he grew up in Nigeria, and R&B, a genre that helped him express things that were tough to say. You can find that conversation in your feed. It's Nonso Amadi. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.